This is Andrew Faust with Permaculture Perspectives. Today, in keeping with my format of the past few podcasts, I will be sharing some readings from some select books. I figured I would start out, given the time of this broadcast and date, being right in the midst of a coronavirus epidemic in the United States and the world, to speak a little bit to this phenomenon that is happening at present and the perspective that I bring to it with this discipline of permaculture informing the interpretation. You know, permaculture has always been about resilient, diversified, multiple backups for single essential functions as a way of life. And what I mean by that is to say that the weaknesses of the present import-export, centralized, long-distance transportation means of providing basic necessities is showing itself to be not a well-thought-out plan. The best-laid plans of mice and men flail about uselessly in the face of large-scale disasters and difficulties. Having a way of living that is adapted to the reality that large-scale disasters and difficulties happen by being more diverse, by being more localized, by being connected to the rhythms of nature that exist geographically to where one resides, one creates a set of circumstances that are inherently more resilient, more reliable in the face of disasters and difficulties. Permaculture is a very mature worldview in that it is informed by a deep understanding of the weaknesses, frailties, and mistakes of civilization and human endeavors such as collective living and cooperative ways of strategizing our lives here on this earth. With the permaculture viewpoint, we clearly understand that what this coronavirus is revealing about how vulnerable we are, is in part speaking to the things that we have been emphasizing as important areas to bolster up and strengthen in the United States economy and landscape. And those things that we need to bolster up and strengthen are food security, food supply that's localized, naturalized, meaning low maintenance, Tree crops will be reading a section from J. Russell Smith to get a little flavor of his inspiration. The theme today that I'm going to really focus on is food and food security and how do we actually achieve that in a way that's informed by the mistakes that have been made arguably for the last 500 years of colonial powers at the very least taking control of vast areas of the world resources. With colonialism, 
came a Eurocentric pattern of land use that we are still paying for the mistakes of today and that Europe never addressed beyond the strategy of colonialism in any practical way. And what colonialism has shown is that taking things from people who live far away and oppressing them and exploiting them and then buying things really cheaply from people who have been oppressed and exploited on the other side of the globe in order to have cereal and clothing and the creature comforts that modern technology provides is not a good game plan, not a reliable way to live, not a way to live that has integrity. So permaculture is a plan. It's a plan that's based on really appropriate and intentional modes of living that are thoughtfully informed by the mistakes of previous civilizations and some of the ways in which we simply and elegantly address many of the long-term historical patterns of ecological destruction and destabilization of food systems and energy and material needs for early civilizations on into the later stages of civilization is this tendency to cut down trees and cause widespread deforestation in order to create food yields. And what permaculture brings a swing of the pendulum back into reason of is it says, how about if we make food from trees and we provide livestock with forage from trees that are selected trees for their characteristics of being particularly highly abundant in their capacity to provide food, to provide fodder for livestock to provide fuel wood and building materials, designed forest ecologies that are reforested along hillsides and steeper places to become economically productive. This simple difference you will see with my historical narrative today will make and would have made the world of difference for Northern Europe during the 16-1700s in terms of starvation, famine, and ecosystem dynamics between population that drove this pattern of colonialism and desperation for new ecosystems to degrade, deforest, and denude in order to grow food on that would continue to support the European population. This is what precipitated colonialism. So in this podcast today, we'll be addressing both the weaknesses that a pandemic shows of civilization and its dependence on goods and services and foods coming from so far afield. And we'll be looking at a historical way and a practical way that we can rebuild a infrastructure of greater regional and local security when it comes to our food and our energy and our overall quality of life here on Earth in our communities. So I'm going to start with a reading from the further teachings of Lao Tzu. 
This is passage number 151 in a translation done by Thomas Cleary. Lao Tzu said, Food is the basis of the people. The people are the foundation of the nation. Therefore, human leaders go by the seasons of the heavens above, conform to the patterns of the earth below, and employ the strengths of humanity in between. In this way, myriad beings grow and proliferate. In spring, dead trees are felled. In summer, fruits are harvested. In autumn, nuts are stored. In winter, firewood is gathered. These are for the sustenance of the people, so that they do not lack for necessities and do not collapse and die. There were laws of ancient kings not to surround the herds to take the full-grown animals, not to drain the ponds to catch fish, and not to burn the woods to hunt for game. Before the proper seasons, traps were not to be set out in the wild, and nets were not to be set in the water. No cutting was to be done in the forests before the falling of the leaves. The fields were not to be burnt over before the insects went into hibernation. Pregnant animals were not to be killed. Birds' eggs were not to be sought out. Fish less than a foot long were not to be taken. Domestic animals less than a year old were not to be eaten. Thus the growth of all creatures was like vapor issuing forth. This is the way that ancient kings adapted to the seasons, cultivated plenitude, enriched their countries, and profited their people. This way is not seen by the eyes and walked by the feet. If you want to profit the people, don't forget the heart, and the people will naturally be sufficed. So there we have from a manuscript written back in 300 BC some insights that we would do well to pay attention to today. Reasonable harvest, reasonable human behavior and relationship with landscapes and ecosystems and life on this planet is more than sustainable. It's unreasonableness that's actually been a cultural delusion that we need to wake up from and become reasonable. Here, I'm going to read a little from this book I've been mentioning, I think, uh, last time, a new section. This is from Potato by John Reeder. Here we're going to dive into some of the comparisons and contrasts that build the base for understanding what I mean about how the colonial period, the mid-1600s and mid-1700s and earlier than on back to the early 1600s and late 1500s really set the groundwork for a lot of the starvation, famine, uh, and arguably ignorant behavior of severe deforestation 
and food shortages as a result, and the drive for trying to survive the hardships of a unknown landscape with new geographies and climates. And that place only seemed hospitable because of how decimated Europe was. And we need to understand that the food system that we're turning around today with permaculture and with organic is to eliminate all chemicals and to create a way of growing food that looks more like a wild ecology so that we can plant wild ecologies that are multifunctional and food providing and replant full-on wild landscapes just for beauty and posterity into the future. So as we build these landscapes of prosperity and future well-being, let's understand how we need to improve upon certain cultural programming that is very entrenched and that that will take a high level of mental and physical attention. But once it becomes intuitive what this path forward is, it no longer requires so much vigilance in our awareness. So here we are on page 100, Potato, John Reeder, learning about some of the history of Europe, famine, and food systems. Surrounded by conveniences, we forget that prior to the development of manufacturing economies, humanity's dependence upon the landscape and its resource was absolute and stark. There was nothing else. I would posit there still isn't. We just have an illusion of an import-export system supporting us that is actually in and of itself far more vulnerable than our relationship and dependence was in the past to local landscapes. Those fields and pasture, mountains, woods, valleys, rivers, and forests, plus the animals and birds they sustained were the totality of what were available to keep people alive and livelihoods had to be wrested from the landscape. That was the normality of 16th century life, and never forgotten. A lad hearing the corncrake call would not pause to wonder. He heard a clue as to where some fresh-laid eggs might be available. People did not stumble over fallen branches in the wood. They carried them home for the fire. Families did not gather on the brow of hills in golden summer evenings to sigh over the beauty of the view laid out before them, the fields of waving corn, the hay securely stacked, the cattle contentedly grazing, the sheep gathered in for shearing. At least, I do not believe they did. I believe that when people scanned the landscape from the brow of a hill in the Middle Ages, their purpose was primarily to assess how much they could get out of it that year and what a lot of hard work it would be. The beauty of nature had nothing to do with their appreciation of the view. In fact, the modern capacity to see beauty in a landscape is probably a deep-seated sigh of relief. We do not have to cut down and saw up that oak to make a new barn, nor milk the cows, shear the sheep, or reap the corn. 
Nor do we have to then, but much of what was being done then that seemed to be a necessity, we could do otherwise then and now, which is to plant out landscapes that are more food-providing, leave the big oak, and harvest the smaller one for the barn. How much would those people on the hill have known of the world beyond their immediate horizon in the 16th century? Quite a lot is the conclusion to be drawn from parish and community records of the period. Although significant numbers were born, lived, and died without ever venturing beyond the bounds of their community, by 1600 and probably earlier, two-thirds of England's rural population changed their village of residence at least once in the course of their lives. And this was a trend that accelerated in succeeding centuries. Many went into service on the great estates. Visitors from the continent remarked that the English gentry would rather have servants than children. But cities and the attractions of urban life were the foremost incentive for leaving the village. Indeed, no city in those days could have existed, let alone grow, without a continuous influx of migrants from the rural areas. Urban death rates in Europe persistently exceeded birth rates until the sanitary and health measures of modern times were introduced. Which is not true of the cities in Mexico and the Aztec Empire. They were very hygienic and healthy. Apprenticeship records from some of London's professional companies show that before 1640 and the crisis of England's civil war, as many as 30 to 40 percent of their apprentices had come from places 300 or 400 kilometers away. So how did they get there? It was not as difficult as might be imagined. In his History of the English Countryside, Oliver Rackham says that in the Middle Ages, the road system of England was rather denser than it is now. Every wood, meadow, house, and barn, and most fields and furlongs had vehicle access. And there were also footpath rights of way across fields. Moors and heaths were crisscrossed with tracks linking hamlets and farms. Even in September 1066, communications were good enough for King Harold to travel 200 miles from London to York in four days, defeat Danish invaders at Stamford Bridge. Then, on hearing three days later that William of Normandy had landed at Pevensey, march his army 250 miles south to confront William at the Battle of Hastings on 13 October. As Rackham points out, a few campaigns before the age of helicopters can have packed more action into three weeks. A tribute to organization and endurance, but also to the country's road system. By the 16th century, Exeter was exporting a greater value of wool than anything else, part of a development that would see increasing numbers of English and European farmers moving away from food production as their primary activity and committing themselves more and more to the business of producing the raw materials that manufacturing industry would pay good money for. Exeter was one of numerous provincial centers that found themselves ideally placed to serve this aspect of Europe's nascent market economy. But no other town in England grew so fast. The census of 1520 reveals a booming mercantile center with widespread connections handling an impressive volume and variety of trade. There were hundreds of importers, wool merchants, wholesalers, fish dealers, brewers, butchers, bakers, and candlestick makers. 
And how many people lived in the city at that time? 7,000 in present times, not even enough to fill the city's 15 million pound football stadium at Sandy Park, whose capacity is 8,200. A little more than 5% of its 2006 population, that number was 7,000 people. But in the 16th century, enough to sustain a thriving center of commercial activity and the social interactions required to service it. The volume of activity generated by relatively small populations in the 16th century is one of the more striking features of life in medieval times. Though it was always constrained by the rights and obligations of a strict social hierarchy in which everyone knew their place, and that of everyone else they may encounter in the daily round. Inevitably, wealth tended to concentrate in the hands of those at the top of the hierarchy. In the 15th century England, for instance, the upper echelons of society, who totaled about 50,000 and comprised no more than 2% of the population, shared an annual income of close to half a million pounds more than ten times the peacetime state budget of the country. And this disparity contributed to the friction which, a century later, provoked a fundamental change in the hierarchical arrangement of English society. Urban poverty was, of course, directly linked to rural poverty. When harvests failed or warring armies rampaged across the landscape, starving country people crowded into the towns. They had no other option. Some had the money to buy food, though prices may have risen three or fourfold. Others looked for work, offering their labor in exchange for bread and gruel alone if necessary. Riots ensued when and wherever the point of total desperation was passed. Fernand Braudel writes of Europe experiencing thousands of bread riots, one of which culminated in the French Revolution. In England alone, the most acute of several hundred grain shortages sparked off 60 serious riots during the century after 1550, spurring the authorities to a more meticulous application of the poor laws even when it meant price controls and ensuring that available grain supplies went to bakeries rather than breweries. In France, where grain riots became virtually endemic during the 16th century, the authorities were less sympathetic. Their response, a commentator reports, was almost always the same. An invasion of troops, summary trials, and gibbets groaning under the weight of corpses. Clearly, Europe's food supply was often strained to the limit, but the underlying cause was not a rapidly expanding population. Prior to the Black Death, Europe had supported more people than in the 16th century, nor the growth of urban centers. The ratio of urban to rural populations remained roughly the same. The principal factor was the change in farming practices that saw farmers turning away from food production as their primary activity and concentrating instead on the production of raw materials for manufacturing industries at home and abroad. 
especially wool. Increasingly, cornfields have transformed into sheep pastures. Add to this the fact that agricultural productivity was inherently low, and you have what is politely called the agrarian problem of the 16th century. So, you know, clearly if all we have is a technical detail like low productivity, that is a design challenge, as we say in permaculture, that can absolutely be addressed through diversity, better crop rotation, more thoughtful integration, and the use of human urine and human night soil as part of your fertilizer regimen. It is astonishing that at least three-quarters of the land being farmed in England today was also under cultivation in the 16th century. The difference is that today's cornfields produce 12 times more than their counterparts 500 years ago. Furthermore, while we can acquire the necessities of life from any number of places in the 16th century, everything, not just foodstuffs, came directly from the land and probably from not very far away. Clothes were made from wool, linen, and leather. Sheep and cattle was used for lightning. Sorry, sheep and cattle fat, tallow, was used for lighting. People wrote with a goose quill pen on vellum, calf skins, or parchment, sheep skins. All forms of transport from sledges to ships were made of wood. And land transport was powered by animals fueled with hay and oats. Hemp was grown to make rope, flax for linen, hops for beard, for beer, woad weld matter and saffron for dyes, teasels to prepare wool for spinning. The labor requirement was immense. With only wind and water mills to ease the burden of men and beasts, it took five or six experienced sickle-wielding reapers a day to harvest a hectare of wheat, which yielded on average, less than a ton of grain, one-third of which must be kept as seed for the next year, and in bad years might not be enough to cover the food requirement of the harvesters. There was livestock to be provided for, too, and haymaking called for equally large inputs of labor over a short period of time, and throughout the year there was plowing, harrowing, sowing, and weeding to be done, ditches and drains to be dug, Hedges to be cut back, fuel wood to be gathered, buildings to be repaired, and always the goading demand of land to be cleared. Shortfalls in production always provoked calls for more land to be brought into cultivation. Even three centuries on, administrators were urging, Let us not be satisfied with the liberation of Egypt or the subjugation of Malta, but let us subdue Finchley Common, let us conquer Hounslow Heath, let us compel Epping Forest to submit to the yoke of improvement. With agriculture and related occupations so labor-intensive, up to 90% of Europe's population were tied to the land in the 16th century. In effect, 9 out of 10 people were supplying the needs of themselves and one other individual not similarly engaged which would have been fine if every farmer consistently produced a surplus of 11% or more. But medieval agriculture rarely achieved such efficient productivity. In England, for example, four out of five farmers grew just enough food for the needs of the family household.
any surplus they reaped and sold in good years would pay for essentials such as salt and iron goods and could provide some insurance against bad years. But the wholesale production of grain for sale was beyond contemplation. They simply did not have enough labor or land. Farms were too small and yields too low. Meanwhile, however, wool was in high demand and the price rising. So we'll leave John Reeder there and Potato there. Quite a good book. Rich history. Very well outlined and synopsized. And he's not driving towards a solution because he's basically wanting to give us a narrative sense of why the potato became such a major staple that Europe began to depend on in another uh, unsustainable way, let's just say. And the reality is that what I learned from reading this with my permaculture lens on is that, in fact, this outline of farms being too small with yields too low is a beautiful synopsis of something that's easy to solve. We need to diversify agriculture, we need to include tree crops, and we need to bring back wild ecologies as a supplemental part of the diet and the material needs of the economy. And by phasing that back in in an appropriate and integrated way, we can get the best of both worlds. Some of what's been lost from the past in terms of that connection to the local landscape we want to bring back, and some of it we don't. And we have the ability with the integration of appropriate renewable technologies to power a localized economy in a much more elegant and ecological way than communities in the 1600s had at their access in Northern Europe. So now I want to shift gears a little bit and read to you some about some of the problems that we have from chemical agriculture so that we have a sense of what it is that we're needing to change and how we're going to go about changing it. Chemists, what we're looking at is a book here called Poison Spring, The Secret History of Pollution and the EPA by E.G. Valianatos. Chemists correctly guessed that this inert synergist would effectively destroy a pest's natural defenses against active poisons. The combination proved to be a spectacular success, with skyrocketing sales of aerosol sprays, fogging concentrates, emulsions, dusts, and wettable powders for homes, gardens, factories, institutions, farms, and food processing plants. Yet two known carcinogens, saffron, and dihydrosafrol are involved in the manufacture of this synergist. In addition, the synergist itself is a carcinogen. When piperonal butoxide is mixed with freons, fluorocarbons, which were used as propellants of pressurized pesticide poison gases, it causes cancer in laboratory animals. Serious concerns also exist that this widely used poison may give rise to tumors, changing the genetic stuff of life and causing lethal defects to the newborn and even chemical castration. 
These chemicals show up in surprising places, such as the standard multi-layer supermarket paper bag, which means that when you use that paper bag to store food or carry your groceries home, you risk contaminating your food with piperonal butoxide. In September 1981, buckling under pressure from industry and the Reagan administration, the EPA aborted a five-year effort to regulate piperonal butoxide, claiming that farmers need not worry about how much piperonal butoxide remains on crops when the synergist and its pesticide carrier are sprayed, quote, in accordance with good agricultural practice. Such policies inevitably kill. The only questions are when and how many. We don't know how much. We don't know much about the victims of pesticide-powered agribusiness because as a society, we often refuse to heed the warnings of some of our best scientists. That sounds familiar. One such scientist is David Pimentel of Cornell University. He has been studying American agriculture for half a century, and his studies have long highlighted the environmental and social costs of pesticides. Using EPA data from the early 1990s, Pimentel figured out that in the United States, pesticides cause 300,000 poisonings per year worldwide. The number is more than uh, 300,000 poisonings per year in the United States from pesticides. Worldwide, the number is more than 26 million a year. Every year, Worldwide, pesticides approximately kill 220,000 people and cause chronic disease in another 750,000. In 1976, the EPA was under pressure from Congress to plug the regulatory holes it had inherited from the USDA. This translated into 50,000 pesticide products with dubious safety records. The EPA also had to deal with more than 4,000 compound tolerances. That is, it had to evaluate the maximum amount of pesticides to be allowed in food. This also happened to be the time when news of the massive IBT fraud had begun to challenge all past assumptions of scientific integrity in the regulation of pesticides. This was all too much for Senator Edward Kennedy, who chaired the Senate Judiciary Subcommittee on Administrative Practice and Procedure. He launched an investigation that concluded that pesticides regulation in the United States is fundamentally deficient. The EPA has, quote, largely failed in its responsibility to assure the safe use of pesticides, Kennedy wrote in the report. EPA has failed the consumer and the farmer as well as the pesticide industry. I find it incredible that a regulatory agency charged with safeguarding the public health and the environment would be so sluggish to recognize and react to so many warnings over the past five years. The EPA was warned and certainly should have known that testing data submitted by industry as long ago as 25 years ago should not be accepted at face value in the re-registration of thousands of pesticide products presently used in our farms and in our homes. But EPA, by and large, ignored those warnings. Even more alarming is that apparently EPA made a conscious policy decision sometime in 1973 or 1974 
not to evaluate the safety testing data submitted by pesticide manufacturers. The record behind this decision is not entirely clear. What is clear, however, is that EPA had no sound basis upon which to assume that that data, 15, 20, or 25 years old, was generally good and reliable. In my view, EPA's decision in the 1970s not to evaluate safety testing data submitted in the 1950s and 1960s was irresponsible. Chapter 10, Fallout. The people who run chemical companies, as well as those engaged in industrial-scale agriculture, are calculating people. Their eyes overlook downstream concerns, like environmental health or human health, and stay focused on the bottom line. For them, the destruction of insects is a source of profit. Other consequences of their products are someone else's concern. They seem uninterested in the fact that insects not only represent 75% of the planet's biomass, but also form the very base of the global food chain, including the human food chain. Ignorance of this fact, along with a broad indifference to the environment, has become deeply troubling, said Glenn B. Wiggins, a distinguished Canadian entomologist in his presidential address to the entomologists of North America in November 1982. The unprecedented prosperity of North American society stems directly from the abundance of productive soils, fresh waters, equable climates, forests, and grasslands that are the foundation of our environment, Wiggins said. The terrestrial and freshwater parts of it at any rate, at any rate are really an insect world. And it is scarcely an exaggeration to say that man will have to learn a great deal more about those insects and the useful as well as destructive things insects do in order to secure harmoniously his own place in that world. It remains to be seen whether people can be educated enough so that one day they may live harmoniously on an insect-dependent earth. George M. Woodwell, a renowned scientist with the Marine Biological Laboratory at Woods Hole, Massachusetts, is not optimistic. He speaks of the Earth being in the throes of a series of biotic changes that are unprecedented in human history and denounces these changes for the impoverishing of the Earth. One might dream that on the only green planet we know, life would have a special value of its own, just as books and works of art do in our culture. Woodwell writes, and if the interest in life, per se, were not sufficient to protect it, one might hope that simple selfish interest in human comfort and sustenance might confer a special status on living systems and force their conservation. Unfortunately, neither occurs. The stacks are open in the world's great library of life, and we advertise to the vandals. Here are some numbers you aren't likely to hear broadcast by the pesticide industry. In 1954, insects destroyed about 10% of America's food crops. In 1980, more than 25 years and untold tons of pesticides later, insects and disease destroyed nearly four times as much food, 
some 37%, worth about $85 billion, without even raising the harrowing questions of environmental and human health, it seems reasonable to ask a simple question. Has it been worth it? If farmers grew food entirely without using pesticides, they would lose about 41% of their crops, according to David Pimentel, Cornell's renowned professor of entomology. This would lead to a rise in the price of food of about 5 to 10%. Yet, when we consider the significant damage done by fully armed chemical farmers, growers, and ranchers, this seems a modest price to pay. In 2003, Pimentel calculated the environmental and societal damages from the legal use of pesticides to be about $12 billion per year. Pimentel is one of the few scientists swimming against the agrochemical stream. For several decades, Pimentel has been asking questions about the energy, economic, and social costs of America's agriculture and the industry's ways of dealing with insects, weeds, and crop and animal disease. Pesticides may be necessary sometimes, Pimentel says, but the costs we pay for them are far too great to justify agribusiness's increasingly unsafe practices. So we're going to leave that reading there. Again, a cheery one. Lots of things to arm your arsenal with the real nightmare legacy from chemical agriculture entitled Poison Spring, The Secret History of Pollution in the EPA, written by a EPA insider, E.G. Valianatos. Uh, he worked for the EPA for 25 years. So, excellent book. Um, again, not no solutions really, other than let's uh, definitely we need to go beyond organic in our food system. One more that I actually have two more here to read from this one, one of my favorites. Um, Lives per gallon, I thought I'd share with you. What are some of the things we solve by switching off of oil? Getting oil, getting chemicals and oil out of food and agriculture first and foremost. Then getting them out of transportation and how we fuel our automobiles and our infrastructure. So, think for a moment, this is from Lives Per Gallon, Terry Tanneman, True Cost of Our Oil Addiction, enumerating what are the benefits of getting off of fossil fuels. As I said, remember, that's getting off fossil fuels in food, too, because we're talking about, according to the FAO, Food and Agriculture Organization, 10 gallons of oil to one pound of food, and a lot of that oil is the pesticides, herbicides, fungicides, and chemical fertilizers. They're all made out of oil. So by getting on 100% organic and 100% beyond organic local with agroforestry and naturalized farm systems, we shift 
one of the worst legacies that we're creating that is perpetuating a problem that goes back to the 1600s in Europe where we were clear-cutting in order to graze sheep and grow food and grow a whole range of grain crops that could have been provided by tree crops so that there was far, far less dependency upon this activity of clear-cutting. So they're dramatically interrelated and need to be changed simultaneously. We need to simultaneously change and redesign our food system to be more diversified, localized, and made to be like a wild ecology. And we need to change our fuel and energy system to be diversified, localized, integrated, and renewable. So here we're looking at energy. Think for a moment of the sacrifices we will not make for locally produced, diverse, renewable, integrated energy systems. In the United States alone, tens of thousands of our citizens will not die prematurely each year. Tens of thousands more will avoid hospitalizations by not depending on fossil fuels and creating a renewable energy infrastructure. Millions will be spared asthma attacks. Diesel exhaust will no longer cause tens of thousands of new cases of cancer every year. On the day that petroleum use becomes the exception rather than the rule, minorities and the poorest among us will no longer suffer five times more asthma and lung cancer than everyone else simply because they live near freeways, railroads, and refineries. Yes, folks, environmental racism alive and well in America. We will no longer consider despoiling our most valuable natural resources for securing a few more days' worth of oil. There will be little or no petroleum-related amounts of lead, benzene, toluene, xylene, MTBE, and other toxins in our food and drinking water. Tens of millions of gallons of oil will no longer wash up upon our shores each year from spills and polluted roadways. The United States will no longer send $612,500 every minute to largely anti-American foreign countries to buy their crude oil. Billions in potential tax revenues will not be drained from local, state, and federal treasuries every year when tax exemptions and subsidies for some of the richest corporations in the world are ended. Farmers will no longer lose as much as a third of their crops to petroleum-related air and water pollution, but will again reap what they sow. Consumers will no longer waste millions of dollars on fraudulent grades of fuel for their vehicles. Though global warming will still affect us because of the 100-year buildup of greenhouse gases, we will no longer face a future that promises to grow worse and worse, especially if we help other nations move away from burning fossil fuels at the same time as we do so ourselves. This is why it's critical that we take a leadership role so that we show the way. It's not simply about numerics of who's making the most amount. It's about showing that we have the wherewithal and the inspiration and creativity to strike a new path of prosperity for our people, a path towards greater integrity, health, well-being, 
food and energy for all in ecological and renewable ways. The ways of life of villagers from the Colombian countryside to the Niger River Delta will no longer be distorted by oil pipelines and drilling rigs that transect their landscapes. Our sons and daughters will not die in foreign wars to protect our access to oil. To end our addiction to the petroleum economy and to accomplish these optimistic outcomes, each of us will need to begin making different personal choices now. And our government will need a new generation of visionary leaders. All right, so some words of insight about what we have to look forward to as we phase out and end our reliance on fossil fuels and petrochemicals and radioactive materials and create a new economy and a new infrastructure. And I'm going to wrap up with reading a couple sections from J. Russell Smith, Tree Crops, a permanent agriculture. And I wanted to share with you some of this man's visionary thinking and how it so aptly addresses some of the problem as outlined by John Reeder that we have continued to perpetuate largely throughout the world in the form of global import commodity-based agriculture on annual cereal crops, that is rice, wheat, soy, and corn, is estimated to be about 60% of the world's food, if you can call that stuff food when it's grown with so many chemicals, which I think it should not be. And we are dependent upon it because it's a huge amount of what drives the economy and drives the wheel production, especially in the G20 nations. And phasing out that dependence on those annual cereal crops and phasing in a diversified agroforestry, agroeconomy is the direction that permaculture is advocating and it stands on the shoulders of some of the ideas and insights that this man articulated in this book, Tree Crops, A Permanent Agriculture, J. Russell Smith, sometime professor of industry at the Wharton School of Finance and Commerce, University of Pennsylvania, now professor of economic geography at Columbia University, copyright 1929. The Vision of the Hill Farms I venture to enlarge Mr. Lombard's vision. I see a million hills green with crop-yielding trees and a million neat farm homes snuggled in the hills. These beautiful tree farms hold the hills from Boston to Austin, from Atlanta to Des Moines. The hills of my vision have farming that fits them and replaces the poor pasture the gullies, and the abandoned lands that characterize today so large a part of these hills. These ideal farms have their level and gently sloping land protected by magnum terraces and are intensively cultivated, rich in yields of alfalfa, corn, clover, legumes, wheat, and garden produce. This plow land is the valley bottoms, level hilltops, the gentle slopes, and flattened terraces on the hillsides. The unplowed lands are partly shaded by cropping trees. 
mulberries, persimmons, honey locusts, grafted black walnut, grafted heart nut, grafted hickory, grafted oak, and other harvest-yielding trees. There is better grass beneath these trees than covers the hills today. The crops are worked out into series of crops to make good farm economy. It will take time to bring this miracle to pass. It will take time to work it out. First of all, a new point of view is needed, i.e., that farming should fit the land. The presence on the land of the landowner is also needed. This is not a job for tenants. Let the tenant go down to the level land which carelessness cannot ruin so quickly. Not his the beautiful home in the beautiful hills. This is the place for the man who has the insurance point of view. Fortunately, insurance is now becoming one of the characteristics of this age. One of the best kinds of farmer's insurance is for him to build his hill farm over gradually to the tree crop basis. How shall the hills be turned into tree farms, since otherwise they will be ruined sooner or later by plowing? The question really is, how can the unplowable lands be made to yield richly through trees? So we get into a lot of detail with J. Russell Smith here. Tree crops for the dry farmers, I'm going to include in a photo for this podcast so you can look at a layout that he recommends of different tree crops planted throughout a farm and how many acres for independence and excess for market. Tree crops have unusual merits for agriculture and some lands too dry for plow farming. If a competition were open for the driest farmers in the world, I should enter as promising contestants the Berbers who live in the Matmada section of central Tunis. Their average rainfall is about 8 inches a year. It is often less than this. Yet, they are the owners of the finest olive trees I have seen in my journeys through Spain, Portugal, Algeria, Tunis, Italy, Palestine, and Syria. These trees are of record-breaking excellence, though growing in a climate of record-breaking aridity. Why? The Berbers build dams of dry stone wall across gullies in a limestone plateau. At every sudden shower, water rushes down the gullies, sweeping a certain amount of loose soil. This catches behind the dams. Olive trees are planted in this soft earth. Every shower that produces a runoff in the gullies soaks this ever-growing mass of collected topsoil so that one half inch of rain may give these trees in the rich gully pockets the equivalent of six, eight, or ten inches of rainfall because of the thorough soaking of the collected soil mass. This practice of gully shower irrigation could be used in the arid parts of America and every other continent. In a certain modified sense, it has already been copied in America. So there's a little for you from the seminal text, foundational book of permaculture, J. Russell Smith, Tree Crops. And I'm going to say that I feel hopeful 
positive. I encourage you to stay at home. Stay with your family. Don't go out and mingle. And stay healthy. Rishi mushroom extract is really an excellent fortification. Chaga mushroom, if it's around and available. Vitamin C. Lots of water. A good diet. Get yourself a bunch of dried beans, organic. bunch of organic rice. Soak them and lightly sprout them before you cook them for extra nutritional value. And enjoy the simplicity of minimalism. And life on a beautiful, abundant, and ever-evolving earth. Any questions? Drop me a line. Be well.